Welcome to episode 172 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Uh, we're just doing the news roundup uh, uh, today so that we can get it out. Uh, we have an interview scheduled later this week with Rick Leggett, uh, uh, and we'll release that separately. But for now, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by Stephanie Roy, who is uh, one of our uh, chief telecommunications partners, uh, and all-around FCC expert by Brian Egan, a new Steptoe partner uh, who does international regulatory and compliance uh, work uh, and was formerly uh, State Department legal advisor. Uh, also by Stephen Heifetz, uh, formerly with DOJ, DHS, and the CIA, and now co-chair of Steptoe's international regulation and compliance practice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's get started. So the story that's unavoidable from last week uh, is uh, a story that uh, has uh, Steptoe Cyber Law podcast and uh, Lawfare all over it. Uh, the reporter uh, who broke the story, Shane Harris, was a guest on several uh, uh, Steptoe po Cyber Law podcast uh, uh, events, uh, and Matt Tate, who uh, uh, provided a lot of the uh, color and evidence about the uh, uh, alleged uh, collusion, uh, uh, has also been on uh, the podcast. Uh, uh, and despite that, I think this story is the point where we will look back and say the whole Russia collusion Trump thing jumped the shark right here. Uh, it was a story in which, uh, it was two stories actually, two days of stories from Shane Harris saying a now dead rich guy uh, went uh, looking for hackers who might have access to Hillary Clinton's um, uh, deleted emails. Uh, this was Months after uh, uh, the emails were handed over, what was left of them, to the uh, uh, FBI, and so was the uh, server. Uh, but uh, uh, this guy, Peter Wilson, was convinced that the uh, uh, emails had been hacked by multiple parties and would be available if he just poked around hard enough. Uh, so he went poking and he talked to Russian hackers who said, oh yeah, we have them. Uh, how much money you have? Um, and uh, he uh, uh, told some of the hackers that he was talking to who didn't have Russian accents that he was working with Mike Flynn and Mike Flynn's son, or at least that Flynn knew about what he was doing. And that's the story. Uh, and I have to say, if that's it, 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 it probably proves the opposite because anybody who was actually colluding with the Russians on this stuff uh, uh, would have, uh, in the Trump campaign, would have shut this whole effort down immediately. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, half of us thought that somebody had already hacked uh, uh, Clinton's email and stolen the uh, uh, the, the emails. Uh, I, and Trump had said, uh, hey, uh, if you got them, cough them up uh, to the Russians. Uh, uh, so this is just somebody following up on that hint. I, I, I just don't see any reason at this point to think that there was actually collusion or that this story is going to turn out to be anything other than a, a, a media uh, obsessive compulsive disorder uh, pursuit. Uh, um, but it did, uh, you know, uh, it, it did cost... As I said to somebody, the, 
uh, the story jumped the shark, but the shark had already eaten Eric Lichtblau, who was a uh, New York Times uh, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter who had jumped to CNN and then who had two very embarrassing errors. Um, uh, one, uh, uh, he announced that uh, uh, Comey's testimony was going to say that uh, uh, Comey had never told uh, Trump that Trump was uh, off the hook in terms of the investigation, or at least wasn't the subject of investigation. Um, and uh, that turned out to be completely false a day and a half after the story ran. Uh, and then um, they did a story on a guy named Scaramucci claiming that uh, uh, he was tied into a sanctioned Russian bank. Uh, uh, Scaramucci said, uh, uh, the hell you say, and CNN withdrew the article and fired Lichtblau or got him to resign. So I, I think that this the story has now cost the media pretty dearly. Uh, of course, they want it to be about Trump tweeting that stupid wrestling video, um, uh, but it is, you know, it's, it's in the last stages of uh, uh, media self-embarrassment, I think. I just need to say, uh, I can't let that go uh, unanswered. Media self-embarrassment, perhaps, uh, commander-in-chief self-embarrassment, most assuredly, because I, I can't say that that tweet was appropriate under any circumstances, let alone this one. Oh, you know, I, I, yes, the, the, the president has shown that, that his sense of his own dignity and the dignity of the office is completely uh, different from everybody else's, uh, and uh, he and the uh, the media are in a ugly mud wrestling match that doesn't do him much good, but does the media less good. Uh, I I I I think the the notion that he's um, contributing to violence against reporters uh, is uh, media self-absorption at the at, at its uh, most supreme. But uh, I, I'm not going to defend the dignity of that uh, that tweet. Okay, uh, so what should the media be covering? Uh, and that I think uh, is uh, uh, the story that I asked Stephen Heifetz to come on. Stephen, uh, um, there is some really interesting stuff happening on the. CFIUS front, that is to say the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, uh, uh, and um, the Trump administration's approach to especially China cases is really uh, uh, stuck on, uh, you know, uh, without, uh, stuck in, in, in park, it seems. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, this is a story that should be getting more attention than it has been. There are record numbers of cases being filed with CFIUS. Uh, they're up to 130 through the first half of the year, which uh, if that were to continue at anything near that pace would shatter uh, records. Last year they had 173, and that was a, a record in the modern uh, CFIUS era. So if they get uh, well over 200, that's that's a big deal. And many of these cases are running into significant problems. Uh, a bunch of these cases are technology investments. Many are Chinese investments, but they're not all Chinese investments. There have been some Russian cases, even some European investments that have run into CFIUS problems recently. Yeah. Um, well, CFIUS problems, not completely surprising. Uh, the Obama administration probably dinged more transactions than any other administration 
in history. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about these is they're not getting dinged. They're just sitting there. Yeah, that, that's right. And some probably will, uh, will clear, uh, after much longer period than, uh, than normal. Uh, though there have been reports of some parties abandoning their transactions because of CFIUS problems. And I think the, the CFIUS bar, so to speak, is, is concerned that more of these cases, that there are a good number, uh, maybe, uh, close to a dozen that are sort of drifting along with the committee, not saying yes, but not saying no. Uh, one of the contributors to this drift is the lack of political appointees at the agencies, which uh, often makes it hard for CFIUS to make uh, definitive decisions, even though the career staff are working very hard. When there's disagreement among the agencies or when it's a, a tough case, uh, you need the political appointees, and they're just not there. You've got virtually nobody uh, at any of these agencies between the career staff and the secretary in their immediate circle. And that's 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 on the Trump administration to a significant degree. It's, they can't really blame the Senate. That it's a question of getting their nominees to the Senate. Yeah, I, uh, I think that's right. It's sort of the art of killing the deal. Uh, <laughs> not not <laughs> a, good a good situation. One. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I and and your guess about how this is all going to resolve? Uh, a few drop, a few get approved, and eventually uh, people get appointed. I think that's right, uh, although another possibility is that a couple of these cases go to the president and the president decides either, you know, he really does want CFIUS clearing more of these deals or uh, maybe he uh, likes to tweet about these cases. So uh, I think uh, the most likely scenario is the one you described. Some of these cases get cleared, uh, people get appointed, and it becomes less of a problem. And another possibility is uh, that the White House starts to become active in these cases and, and sets a, uh, an agenda or a policy for how Scipius ought to be treating these tougher cases. So that's not the only issue that has sort of uh, run into, basically turned into a train wreck. Uh, um, the, uh, the UN GGE, the Government Group of Experts uh, effort, uh, which uh, the Obama administration invested a lot of effort into uh, uh, on cyber uh, war, trying to get agreement uh, at the UN level with the Chinese and the Russians with, uh, to a set of principles about how international law and the international law of armed conflict applied to um, uh, cyber uh, weapons. Uh, uh, has run into what looks like a brick wall. Uh, the uh, uh, the Chinese and the Russians, one suspects, have basically said, you know, uh, uh, we're not even sure we like the things that we said last time uh, under uh, the uh, Obama administration's uh, uh, pressure, uh, and so we don't want to write a report again that endorses the idea of international law limits on uh, uh, cyber war. Um, Brian, uh, I, you you were pretty involved in the GGE effort. Uh, uh, what do you make of the collapse of that effort under the Trump administration? I think it's, uh, it's a, st- a step back, although not a full step back. Uh, you, As you said, Stuart, last week the U.S. representative to this group 
very publicly announced her frustration with the process. The group did not come to consensus. This is the fifth round of their meetings. This is the first time in about eight years that they haven't reached a consensus document at the end. Uh, I do think, though, that the, the agreements reached in 2013 and 2015 remain relevant, that, in fact, the Chinese and Russians have already agreed that international law applies to cyberspace. They, they, they agreed to a set of norms in 2015 uh, that critical infrastructure and other things are off limits, uh, and those are going to remain regardless of whether the group does anything further. So you've, you've got now the Trump administration. Tom Bossert gave a speech in Israel last week talking about moving on from the GGE, but he said the GGE has come up with good results in the past, but now the U.S. is going to be looking to more bilateral slash coalition of the willing efforts to take things further in this space. So I don't think we're seeing the end of uh, international discussions on these issues, just not in the GGE. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. They didn't, because uh, um, it, it would have been hard to, to achieve consensus on walking back stuff they'd already said, but uh, the... If I read Michelle Markoff's statement uh, right, she was saying uh, all we were trying to do was to build on and reaffirm the statements that we'd made in the past, and we couldn't get agreement on that either. She, she did, but the the you know the beauty of the UN system and UN documents is there's a record that these governments have already agreed to these things, and I think it's going to be very difficult for China and Russia to turn around and say publicly, actually, we don't think international law applies to cyberspace, and we don't agree that critical infrastructure should be protected. So this is a tool that could be used by this administration and future administrations uh, to further the goals uh, that lie behind the tool, I think, even if no further work is done in the U.N. And what would you do internationally if, if, if you don't think the U.N. is the right place? And I, I'm on record for thinking that that's the last place you would go for uh, uh, agreement on something like this, because the group of 77 always has its hand out and says, uh, oh, yeah, we, we'll give you money. We'll, we'll give you agreement if you give us money. Um, a, where would you go to uh, to try to reach uh, agreement, and what would you look for agreement on? Well, I think the, the, the Trump administration has already signaled some of the things that they're going to be doing. So uh, Bossert gave a speech from Israel at a working group meeting between U.S. and Israeli cyber officials, and he very publicly said we intend to work very much more closely with uh, our closest partners on some of these things to see if we can come up with uh, joint understandings. The U.K. and Israel were mentioned by name. Uh, you also see efforts we've talked about on the podcast in the past in the G7 and the G20. You see some efforts that yep. uh, in, in the EU for, for sanctions. All of those have their own issues and shortcomings, but I don't, I don't think that this administration is going to stop trying to push these issues in different channels. Yeah, I think that's probably right, but they're going to look for things where they think uh, it's in everybody's interest to agree on a, on a couple of principles uh, or where uh, the, they think they can reach agreement among a subset of the international community and then uh, gradually expand that beachhead with sanctions and the like. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, and I see... Uh, you know, the uh, FATF has come out with something talking about information sharing as a way of getting um, a, a better anti-money laundering uh, uh, policy, which looks like it's it's sort of the, first, the, the, the second, where you, you reach agreement with uh, the people who care about the issue, and then you s gradually try to impose it on the, uh, the laggards. 
I think I think that that's right. And so the FATF has come out with they're actually seeking public comments on draft principles that would uh, talk about the issue of in, in the financial industry, financial institutions doing more to share information both within an individual institution and between institutions on issues of uh, money laundering and other criminal activity and terrorist financing. This, of course, is a huge issue in cybersecurity as well, where for bank secrecy and other reasons, uh, banks sometimes feel constrained in terms of what they can share with the government and with each other on these issues. Uh, and so I think one sp- it will be interesting to watch the FATF space to see whether cyber is handled more ex- explicitly there than it is currently in their draft guidelines. Yeah, that, well, I, you know, FATF is not the place to talk about uh, uh, cybersecurity, but there's no doubt that whatever they do is going to be relevant to cybersecurity uh, uh, information sharing. Okay, well, uh, uh, last topic I wanted to cover uh, is uh, uh, the, uh, the the modest spat within the FCC over what to do about the fact that the privacy regs that came out uh, under uh, Chairman Wheeler have now been rejected uh, uh, by Congress and what that means for the regulations that apply uh, today to uh, uh, telecom and uh, uh, ISPs. Uh, um, and Stephanie, what what did this exchange actually tell us about uh, uh, that topic? Uh, much of nothing, really. Uh, the <laughs> Thursday order that came out um, was, uh, quote, ministerial, according to the FCC chairman, uh, reminding parties that the commission section 222 rules were, quote, uh, that existed prior to the 2016 privacy order that this, which the, um, Congressional Review Act action, um, rendered null and void, uh, were again in effect, um, or I guess they springing back into motion. But it's, it's a bit of an odd statement by the FCC because these rules never applied to ISPs because in the 2015 Open Internet Order, the FCC specifically forbore from applying its existing 222 rules. Uh, that's 22, Section 222 of the Communications Act. Uh, they promulgated rules um, pursuant to the authority under that provision. Um, they specifically forbore from applying those rules, which were written predominantly for telephone uh, companies, to ISPs and said that, you know, they were going to promulgate specific rules for ISPs, and they did so in the 2016 order. So I, I'm a little confused by the intent here because the 20, the old 222 rules always continued in effect for non-ISP services. They were never applied, and the forbearance in the, from the 2015 order continues to hold that they continue to not apply to ISPs, even though ISPs are telecommunications carriers. So we're left don't, with. Don't you think that's exactly? Don't you think that's exactly what the what the um, commission uh, uh, under uh, Ajit Pai was trying to say? It, it just in case anybody had any doubts, this is how it's going to go. No, I actually I think this whole order was a bit of a sleight of hand to um, even though the in, uh, a sentence on page two reminds folks that these rules have never applied to ISPs because of the forbearance in the 2015 order by coming out with this 
order, and I'm, I'm, you can't see me, but I'm doing the, I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers here in the air. Order, reminding them that they're reinstated, is some kind of signal that don't worry, you're protected. But they're not. The customers of ISPs have only the statutory provision of 222 to fall back on, which is very general. Talks about a general obligation, a little bit more on CPNI, but nothing. Um, more, and mind you, the ISPs didn't like the very generality of the Section 222. They wanted, they asked for more specific rules uh, regarding privacy uh, during the original open Internet process. So it, it feels like part of the whole play that's been going on to convey a message that, don't worry, consumers, we've got your back, even though, you know, these privacy rules were... Um, nullified when in so fact this it, void still exists. So what you're what you're saying is you think this is a this is just uh, feeding a talking point. The the talking point being yes there are protections for privacy. Um, they just aren't very detailed or very clear. And your view is they're so lacking in detail and clarity that they might as well not exist. No, exactly. And there's. Um, really no recourse for the consumer currently uh, under the general statutory provision because there's no precedent applying just the statutory provision. There's only the specific rules uh, under the commission's regulations that don't apply to ISPs on their face. So what is a consumer to do? Nothing. So in this order, again, quote-unquote, that does nothing, it, it can only be for a communications purpose. So... That's really my take, and uh, it and it's okay. so, being issued at this time the, when what, the open internet comments are due later this month. All right. So what what where where does all of this lead you to think the uh, um, FCC is going? Are they going to just leave it like this and say, well, we we can step in in egregious circumstances, and otherwise we don't think we uh, either can or want to uh, uh, write rules? Oh, that n- neither want to nor will write rules for ISPs because they are, have very clearly signaled their intent to overturn the reclassification. Um, I, I don't think it matters very much um, what proponents of the open Internet say come July 17th. I think the um, NPRM was uh, written with the objective clearly laid out with little devi- permitted deviation. The question is whether or not um, the record, when taken as a whole, will support the FCC's view when it gets challenged. Okay, and you'll be part of that challenge, I'm willing to bet. Um, uh, somebody around these parts will be, I'm sure. Okay, thanks to Stephanie Roy, Brian Egan, Stephen Heifetz uh, for that news roundup. We're looking forward to a uh, separate interview with Rick Leggett uh, later this week. This has been episode 172 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, please send us suggestions for guest interviewees. If they come on the show, we'll give you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug. If you just send your uh, suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, we will respond. Um, coming up, we've got Jim Miller, uh, who was the uh, uh, co-chair of a Defense Science Board uh, panel on deterrence in cyberspace. Uh, Eric Heisen, uh, 
who did a great job of explaining the inexplicable, which is uh, uh, how the federal government does IT procurement and what's wrong with it. He was the executive director of the Department of Homeland Security's Digital Service. Uh, and Dave Itell, who is one of the most provocative men in cyber law policy, uh, the CEO of Immunity Inc., uh, um, uh, talking about, among other things, export controls on cyber uh, security products. Uh, we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. And don't forget to uh, uh, drink your fill of the Steptoe Cyber Law podcast in July because we are going on hiatus in August. <laughs>